Welcome to the South Coast Christian Podcast. I'm Pastor Tom Westerfield. On behalf of myself and our entire staff, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope this message uplifts and encourages you this week. I wasn't sure. I, I, I wasn't sure. A handshake felt weird in that moment, but I thought that's what you were going for, so that's my, that's my bad. Let the record show that I was the one who made that interaction awkward. Not my father. Well, hey, everyone. How's it going? I'm going to be honest. Uh, every year, uh, my wife and I, which, by the way, this is my wife, Ashley. She's amazing. She already stood up, though, so you don't have to stand up again. But I love her a lot. Um, and she uh, said yes, and she hasn't figured out that that was a mistake yet, so that was awesome. Um, but every year, um, anyone who works at a church will tell you that the lead up to Christmas Eve is kind of, it's, it's just kind of stressful, because it's just one of those big services and so every year we come down pretty much on Christmas Day, um, and really it's just a time for both of us to be able to um, just recharge, I guess. So it's to kind of like get away for a little bit, um, kind of take the stress away. And, and part of that is being home and, uh, and being with my parents, being with my family, and kind of just getting to gather together there. Um, but also part of that is you guys. Like you guys, every time I'm here, uh, I don't feel like I'm a visitor who's coming. I feel like I'm just part of the church, and you guys all make me feel welcome. So I'm very grateful. Um, for this church, both in the way um, that you treat my family, but also in the way um, that you treat me when I come down to visit. And every time I come, um, I feel refreshed. I feel like I get to kind of recharge and then go back. Um, and then my wife and I get to continue uh, the work that God is having us do in Marysville. So thank you for that. Um, or give, yeah, give a round of applause. That works too. Um, so when I was asked today if I wanted to speak, I, I was thinking about um, what kind of a, of a message would really fit in with this time of year. Because it's really weird. Um, the week between Christmas and New Year's is kind of this nebulous, like, I don't know what day it is, if we're being honest. Like, I just kind of, like, I wake up, and then I eat, and then I watch a movie, and then, like, I take a nap, and then is it the next day? Is it not? I don't know. It's just one of those weird things. And it seems like um, all of... I guess technically it's late fall because winter doesn't start till December 21st, but um, all of late fall is kind of this just push into Christmas, and then we celebrate um, the incredible hope that we have in Christ and, and all that Christmas really means to us as Christians, and then there's kind of just like this downslope of a week, and it's kind of weird, and we're ramping up for New Year's. Um, if we're being honest, I'm really, I'm a New Year's curmudgeon. Like, I don't stay up till midnight. Like, that's just, that's for the young people, and I'm not old, but I just... I can't do it anymore. So um, I don't particularly like staying up for New Year's, all those different things. It's not my uh, particular holiday cup of tea. If it's yours, that's great. But what I do think is really interesting about New Year's is it constantly puts us in the mindset of setting goals or what are the things that I want to do. It, it, it's a time for us to kind of reflect, um, not just on the past year, although we do that a lot, but it's also a time for us to reflect on our lives in general. And I think that one of the the big issues for, for us as Christians is that there's different things that God has called us to do. There's different things that I think all of us in our heads, if we say, um, if we take a moment to think about what are the things that God has asked me to do, we can probably come up with a couple of things. And I think one of the things that holds many of us back is insecurity. And insecurity is not just a uniquely Christian problem. It's a, it's a, it's a problem all throughout culture. And I think most of culture realizes how much of a problem it is. If you walk into a bookstore... Um, which granted are getting more and more rare, which is sad. But if, if you walk in, um, you're going to see a bunch of different sections. You know, you'll see mystery novels, romance, classics, nonfiction, all those different things. Um, but most likely, the biggest section that you're going to find at a bookstore, even today, is, is self-help. 
And what all of those books are about is basically saying that you as the reader understand that there is something wrong with how your life is right now and you're, and you're trying to fix it. Or in other words, it's, it's, it's helping you deal with, with insecurity and different things. It's helping you improve yourself. That's the largest section that you're going to find. If you go on Facebook, which is becoming more and more dangerous, um, I would say that like every time I go on, it's probably about 50% of people arguing about politics, which is always productive on social media. Um, and then it's about 5% pictures of people's kids. And then it's like 45% of what I'll just call like um, posts about being insecure. And whether it's people kind of like complaining about it or whether it's like, you know, you're scrolling through all the different things and all of a sudden it's just like, you are beautiful just the way you are. And I'm like, thank you, Facebook. I needed... <laughs> I needed that today. Um, but that's just kind of like what it is. Like culture as, as general, we, we have this idea that insecurity is a problem. And the last example I want to give um, is I, I listen to podcasts. I'm not a big music guy. Um, I'm kind of a nerd. So I like to, I like to learn or um, I like to turn my mind off and listen to sports. So I, one or the other is kind of what I'm doing when I have my headphones in. Um, and so on my podcast app, it'll, you know, it'll suggest podcasts for you. So, you know, like I listen to, um, like, the Village Church. I really like Matt Chandler speaking. So, I'm like, hey, if you like him, maybe you'll like Stephen Furtick. It's like, maybe. I mean, who knows? And I go check it out. Or, you know, if I listen to, you know, whatever the, the sports thing that I like, it's like, hey, if you like the Mariners, have you heard about this podcast? I'll, it gives you all the suggestions. But my number one suggestion, for whatever reason, um, is a podcast called Why Won't You Date Me? Which, first off, my wife says I'm delightful, so I don't care for your tone podcast app. Um, but the, the second thing is, is, isn't it interesting that even though none of the podcasts I listen to would really be anything like that, that my number one suggestion is a podcast that, I mean, I haven't listened to it, so I guess I'm assuming, but I'm assuming it's dealing with insecurity um, in some sort of way is kind of what, the way it's structured. That our culture is very much aware that this is an issue facing all of us. And I think culture gets that right. I think um, the idea that we struggle with insecurity is absolutely a truth that we can't ignore. What I think the culture gets wrong is um, solutions to insecurity. And, and most of the time when, when, I, when I read solutions about insecurity, when I read people kind of like trying to, trying to help, it's, it's things that ring hollow at the end of it. And a lot of the times, and obviously I'm paraphrasing and being very broad right now, but a lot of times what the, what the answer is is like, hey, you know, ignore the haters, or you're perfect just the way you are. Don't ever change. Like, all these different things. And, and, and it, it feels good in the moment because you're like, you know what? Yeah, I am awesome. How, how dare they? And then all of a sudden you realize, like, the more and more you live, like, well, maybe um, that's not as true as I thought it was. And I, and I think as Christians, one of the, the pitfalls that we, can, that we can fall into is we think so much about are we good enough that we don't stop and think about do I, do I truly believe that Jesus is enough? And we, we put so much of the focus on us and we don't put it on the one that we're serving. And, and as I said kind of in the beginning, our insecurity holds us back from the calls that God has placed on our lives, the things that God would have us do. And it, it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be anything big or grand. Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. Um, but whatever it is, at least in the world's eyes, I shouldn't say like anything that is pushing forward the kingdom of God is an amazing thing. But the things that God calls us to do, a lot of times it's our own insecurity that holds us back from doing it. And so today what I want to do is I want to take three stories from the Bible um, and show how um, all three of these men are people that we would, we would call heroes of the faith. Like if you were going to list off like who are the most famous people in the Bible, these three, would, they would make their way in somewhere on the list. 
Um, but what they all three have in common is that they all dealt with insecurity of different kinds, and then we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about the way that God answered it. And so you could really say that this, um, this message is kind of like 10 mini-messages packed into a message. So it's like a mini-series, if you will. So get excited. It's going to be awesome. But first, a drink. I haven't been speaking too long. Um, it's been a few years, I guess, now, but I have not mastered how to take a drink and not make it awkward yet, so <laughs> I am working on that, and one day when I come down to speak, you won't even notice that I took a drink of water, but that is not, that is not this day. Uh, the first person I want to talk about is Moses, and so for most of us, Moses um, is a character that we're all very familiar with. If you grew up in church, um, I'm sure you've heard the story time and time again. For my generation, we grew up watching uh, Prince of Egypt, which is great. You know, Val Kilmer, Ray Fiennes kind of duking it out as the brothers. It was a good deal. Um, For those of you who are in the older generation, when I say the word Moses, maybe you think of Charlton Heston standing on top of Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, but um, whatever you picture, Moses is very much... In, um, in the lexicon, I guess, that you'll say, of Christian characters that we're all very much aware of. And if, if you're not aware of him, just to give a real, a real quick recap on his life, Moses is a Jew who was born into Egypt at a time of extreme oppression against the people of God. And the Pharaoh had decided, the king of Egypt had decided that he was going to kill all of the Jewish boys under a certain... Yeah, boys, yeah, just boys. Under a certain age, uh, Moses' mother makes a waterproof basket and sets him in the basket, puts him on the Nile River in the hopes that essentially he'll float down um, somewhere else. Someone will pick him up and raise him so that the child can have a life instead of being killed by the king. And as uh, providence would have it, as God's hand would guide it, uh, Moses actually makes his way into the household of the daughter of Pharaoh. And so Moses is raised um, not as a Jewish slave, but rather he's raised um, in the household of Pharaoh. He's raised as part of Pharaoh's court. Um, but we know that Moses is aware of his Jewish identity because a few years after um, all these things happen when Moses is an adult, uh, he sees an Egyptian slave master beating uh, a Jewish man. And Moses is overcome by rage and he actually commits murder and he kills um, the Egyptian and he runs away because um, the penalty for murder in that culture was death. And so Moses runs away out of Egypt, and he makes his way to the land of Midian, where he meets his future father-in-law, and his father-in-law, or future father-in-law, gives him a job, which is a great thing for a father-in-law to do. And then uh, Moses eventually meets his wife, Zipporah, they get married, and Moses is living, the next 40 years of his life, he lives his life as a shepherd. Um, And for all intents and purposes, when we look at the story of Moses, Moses seems to be very content with that is what his life is going to be. He doesn't have any ambitions to really do anything else. He's going to live his life quietly as a shepherd um, with his new family and, and live and die in Midian. And then one day, Moses is walking, and he sees, a, a, we, you know, we know, it's the burning bush, right? Um, but what's special about this bush is it's not turning black, the fire isn't dying down, it's not consuming the bush, but rather it's just kind of this fire that is always around the bush, but the bush isn't being affected at all. And Moses recognizes that this is a miracle, this is something very strange going on, and so he takes off his sandals, God is talking uh, to Moses, and this is what he says in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, it says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, 
that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now I'm going to pause there for a second. Um, I think one of the big mistakes that we make when we're reading the Bible is that we don't actually put ourselves into the situations that these people are going through. Because we, we know the story, right? We all know the story of Moses. We know what happens. Um, so we kind of read through it and we think like, oh, that's really cute. And then we move on. Um, but what's happening in this moment is that Moses, who is so filled with rage about the oppression of his people that he's driven to commit murder and runs away and is probably realizing that he's going to live the rest of his life completely separated um, from his family, completely separated from his people. And then God comes and he says, no, 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 that's not what's actually going to happen. What is going to happen is I am going to deliver the people out of Egypt. And God says something incredible. He says that I have heard their cries. I know their sufferings. Which is, I mean, that could be a whole message in itself, that God hears the cries of his people. And so not only does he tell Moses, like, no, no, I'm going to deliver the people. They will not be slaves forever in Egypt. I'm also choosing you to do this. this is, it's an incredible moment in Moses' life when he is, again, thinking he's probably going to be a shepherd forever, that God comes seemingly out of nowhere, and he says, no, 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 I am delivering the people of Egypt, and you are the one who I am going to use for this. I've heard their cries, and I'm using you. But here's how Moses reacts. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 15, so we're skipping ahead a little bit, it says this. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O Lord, please send someone else. Then, and catch this, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet with you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him. And put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. <clears throat> and so Moses' insecurity is that he doesn't think he's skilled enough. So God says, I'm picking you, you're going to do this. And Moses' comeback is essentially like, well, God, like, I'm not eloquent of speech. And, and what I think is really interesting is how Moses is how God answers Moses. If you read verses 11 and 12 it says, "Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak." You'll notice that that God's answer actually doesn't refer to Moses at all. Like it's directed at Moses, he's talking to Moses, but nothing in that passage is saying like, "Well, Moses, you're great." Like the only at the very end when he says, "I will be with you." But God's first answer to Moses' claim is, is not a, a claim about how Moses is special, how Moses is amazing. Like, no, no, Moses, you're, you sell yourself short, buddy. You're so good. You're going to be a great speaker. Like, no, God's answer is, um, like, who do you think I am? It's, it's almost like sarcastic, right? Like he's saying, like, who, who made man's mouth? Who makes him deaf? Who makes him mute? Who makes him seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It's almost this kind of like, I, I want to be careful because I don't want to... Um, be irreverent, but it's almost like God is saying, like, who, who do you think you're talking to right now? And what I think is interesting 
is that it says that God's anger is kindled against Moses. And, and what I think this reveals to us is a really important truth that all of us need to, need to wrestle with. And that is um, insecurity is uh, pride masquerading as humility. And, and for a lot of us, when we, when we live in our insecurity, we think to ourselves, like, oh, we're being really humble right now. Um, but maybe while we wouldn't say this out loud and maybe we wouldn't say like this is what our heart is, what, what you're doing when, you're, when God is calling you and you're saying, no, you've got the wrong person, you're saying like, God, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. I, in all my wisdom, know that I'm not the right person for the job. Um, and, and, and so it makes sense that God's anger is kindled against Moses because Moses isn't just saying like, well, I don't know. Moses is literally looking into the face of God and saying like, you don't know what you're talking about. I can't do what this is that you're saying. And that's why God responds with, who do you think made, made you? It's really interesting that that is how God answers Moses. In the second part in verse 12, he says, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. Or in other words, go, and I will be with you. The, the answer that God gives Moses to his insecurity is not like, Hey, listen, you're amazing, you're perfect, you're a snowflake, you're so unique, like whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, God's answer to Moses is, is really, Yeah, but I, I will be with you. And, and that's enough. Let's take a look at another story. We'll fast forward um, a few generations. And so we all know how, how Moses' story ends, right? So the people come out of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh attacks them. Red Sea caves in. It's awesome. Moses goes in. Uh, they don't make it to the promised land quite yet. Moses' second command, Joshua, takes over. Him and Caleb are two super awesome dudes. Uh, they lead conquest of the, entire, of the entire land of Canaan. They're conquering cities. Um, afterwards, God establishes kind of a rule where uh, the tribes rule themselves. At this point, there's no king in Israel, and so they're kind of just, the people are just kind of ruling themselves for the most part. And then when something comes up where they need um, a ruler to kind of unite the tribes, God would raise up someone called a judge. That's where we get the book of Judges. It's a, it's a record of all of those people um, that God raised up, the first one being Othniel, who was Caleb's son-in-law. Um, he, was, he was also a really cool dude. So a lot of, a lot of cool people um, in the book of Judges, but we're not going to go over all of that today. Uh, but we're going to zoom in on uh, Judges chapter 6, and we're going to talk about the story of Gideon. Now, once again, people, the people of God are being oppressed um, by a foreign power. In Moses' day, it was the Egyptians were oppressing the Israelites, and then in Gideon's day, it's the Midianites are oppressing the Israelites. And what's happening is the Midianites are coming in, like if you've ever seen The Magnificent Seven, which I guess is an older movie, but you know, for me, it's one of my favorites, right? So they come in, they steal all the grain, and they leave. That's basically what the Midianites are doing, right? And so the Israelites are farming, they're harvesting all of their wheat, all of their grain, and then the Midianites are coming in, they're stealing their food, um, and what's happening is the Israelites are being forced to take their food and go up into caves and hide it. And if you don't have access to caves, you're having to find some places to hide it so that when uh, these raiders come in, they're not going to be able to find it all. And so Gideon, when the angel of the Lord comes to find him, Gideon is standing inside of a wine press. Um, and what, what I think is kind of interesting is our modern idea of a wine press, like what I think of when I hear the word wine press, is kind of like a box that's on stilts, and then you're stepping on the grapes, and then juice is coming out of a faucet that's a fix, and you're putting it into buckets, right? That's what my thought is. Um, but when you look at what wine presses were um, in the ancient Middle East, they weren't boxes on stilts, but rather they were pits that were carved into the ground, 
um, layered with stone, and then you would press the grapes down there, and then it would kind of run through the pit. I, I used to have a picture of it. I, did, I forgot to grab it today, so that's my bad. I'm trying to paint a word picture for you here. Um, but basically, it's just a giant pit in the middle of the sand is what a wine press is. And the reason that Gideon is sifting wheat inside of a wine press is because he doesn't want the Midianites to see what he's doing. Because if he's out in the open and he's sifting wheat, then all of a sudden raiders are going to come and they're going to steal everything. But if he's in a pit, they're not going to see him sifting through the wheat and he's going to be able to gather it up and then find a place for it to hide, for, for, to hide the food so that his family will be able to eat. And it's in this moment that the angel of the Lord comes and finds Gideon. And so in Judges chapter 6, verses 12 through 15, it says this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go, this, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So in much the same way as Moses, Gideon is a man who is very aware of the oppression that his people are going through. And again, in the same way, God actually says, I have heard the cries of my people, and I'm going to deliver them, and and I'm picking you. You're the one who's going to do this. And Gideon also responds in insecurity, but his insecurity is a little bit different from Moses. If Moses is insecure about he's not skilled enough, Gideon actually doesn't mention anything um, about being skilled. He doesn't mention, like, when God says he's a warrior, Gideon's not like, I'm no warrior. Like, Gideon seems like he's all right with that part of it. What he actually says that he's insecure about is that my clan is the weakest in my tribe and I'm the least in my family. Or in other words, if you take our entire tribe, this entire region that we live inside, and you find the weakest clan, that's the clan I'm a part of. And then if you find that clan and you find the least important person in that clan, that's me. And that's what Gideon is saying. And I think a lot of times we have a tendency to paint Gideon as a coward, like he doesn't want to fight, and all of a sudden like God kind of like raises him up, which I, I don't think is actually what's going on in that verse. I think what's happening there is that Gideon legitimate, legitimately believes that he is not the guy who can unite Israel to fight against this. And he even says it. He says, you know, if the Lord is with us, then why has this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers have recounted to us? So clearly Gideon is aware of the history of Israel. It's not like he's coming out of nowhere. So Gideon has grown up hearing stories about Moses and Aaron. And he's heard about Joshua and Jericho and about how the walls come down and Joshua is this great hero. He's heard about Caleb going up into the mountains and killing giants and being awesome. He's heard about Othniel uh, raising up and uniting the tribes of, of Israel to fight against people. He's heard these stories about these mighty men, and now God is in front of him telling him, you are the next in line after this line of mighty men. And Gideon's like, whoa, I am not the right guy that you want for this. Gideon's insecurity isn't about whether or not he can pull it off. Rather, his insecurity is about, I don't think I am important enough to be the one who does this. I I know the names of the people who are in the past. I know the names of these heroes, and I'm not um, the right guy to follow in that line. Gideon probably thinks that there's a better choice out there. 
Like, hey, like maybe go tribe of Judah. They're a big deal. Find the most important clan. Find the best guy in that clan. He's, I mean, he's your guy. I don't know what his name was, but you know, Judah guy. Find him. <laughs> Gideon doesn't compute that God is asking him. And interestingly, even though uh, the tone is very different, God's answer to Gideon is the same. The very next verse, so Judges 6, 16 says this, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And so again, God's answer to, to, um, to Gideon is not like, No, you're super important. Like, I don't care what anyone else says. Your family, they're not weak. They're, super, they're the Schwarzeneggers, your family. They're amazing. Like, whatever it is, God's answer to Gideon is that I will be with you. God doesn't try and puff Gideon up. God doesn't try and tell Gideon, like, no, you're amazing. You're awesome. God rather simply reminds him of the truth that because I have called you, you are qualified. And it's not, it's not the opposite. God doesn't qualify the called. He calls the qualified. Wait, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Fast forward, last story. Um, we're fast forwarding a lot this time, not a few generations. We're going a few centuries. And we're coming to the time of Jesus. At this point, uh, the kings of Israel have come and gone. Israel is ruled over by the Roman Empire. And uh, it is into this world that Jesus comes and does his incredible ministry. And at the very end of his ministry, and actually it's fitting that we took communion today because his story is, uh, kind of starts at the Last Supper. Uh, but Peter, Jesus is with his disciples. One of those disciples is Peter. Um, and speaking of people who he wouldn't view as qualified, if you look at kind of Peter's credentials, um, he's an uneducated uh, fisherman from northern Israel, which is far away from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's kind of like where your more educated people would be. Peter's far away from there. And he's also, um, he's an incredibly brash person, which in some ways makes Peter very likable, because when you're reading through the Bible and you're seeing Peter, you can really see yourself in there sometimes, because you're like, man, that guy's a moron, and so am I sometimes. That's kind of, that's kind of Peter's deal. Um, and so Peter's very, Peter's very brash. And so in the Last Supper, um, Jesus is making it clear that all of the disciples will eventually desert him. And, and Peter has the audacity to interrupt Jesus and say, like, listen, I don't care what anyone else in this room does. I am not going to desert you. And Jesus just looks at Peter without missing a beat, and he says, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me. And so if we keep going throughout the story, the Last Supper ends, Jesus is betrayed. Um, Peter again is brash and he hacks at one of the guards. Jesus puts the ear back onto the guard. Um, Peter runs away. All the disciples run away. And Jesus goes uh, into trial. And while he's in trial, we know that Peter, um, at least Peter, I don't remember if it says any of the other disciples, but they're sitting outside waiting to hear what's going to happen with Jesus. And then someone goes to Peter and they say, like, hey, I, th I think I recognize you. You're one of those guys that was, that was with Jesus. And Peter says, like, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who this Jesus guy is. And then another guy comes up to him and he says, you know, I, I recognize your accent. You're from Galilee. You're from northern Israel. Like, you're one of those guys that was with Jesus. And Peter, again, denies ever having met Jesus. And then it says a servant girl comes and says that she recognizes Peter. And it says that Peter curses and says that, no, I have never uh, met Jesus in my life. And it's in that moment uh, that Jesus sees Peter and he realizes what has actually taken place. He realizes that even after making this bold declaration to Jesus himself that he's never going to deny him that Peter has in fact failed. And one of the interesting things that happens when we tell the story, because I mean, we know how this ends, right? We're here today worshiping Jesus, so obviously he doesn't die and nothing happens after that. Um, 
Jesus is crucified, he dies, he rises again after three days, Easter Sunday, it's awesome. And we kind of treat the story as if right after Jesus um, rises again, the disciples are super jacked, and then they go out and they start doing their ministry. But that's actually not what happens, right? So Peter, Jesus rises again, he visits with Peter um, and the other disciples, and then what's really interesting is that Peter and a few of the other disciples actually go back to Galilee for a period of time. And they actually go back to seemingly the only life that they've ever known. Because remember, before they were called to be disciples, they were all fishermen. Not all fishermen, but Peter, uh, James, John, and Andrew were fishermen. And so they go back, and they just began living on the Sea of Galilee, and they began fishing again. And that's where we pick up the story. In John 21, verses 2 through 8, it says this. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. I always feel bad for the two disciples that weren't named there. That's a bummer. Um, And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. But they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. The disciple, that disciple that Jesus loved, therefore, which is John, uh, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment or put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred years off. And so I love this moment because Peter's brashness, which is sometimes bad, um, also comes into play because they realize, like, far off, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. And Peter, instead of like, well, let's get the boat back to shore, he just grabs his jacket, throws it on, and just jumps in and swims back to shore, leaving the rest of the disciples to haul in the net and also bring the boat back. So maybe, you know, Peter could have been nicer and stayed in the boat. But hey, he was really excited to see Jesus. And so he jumps into the water. He swims to shore. Jesus has um, breakfast cooking. And here's what I think is really um, beautiful and poetic about this passage. If you remember the way that Peter was called he was fishing, and Jesus walks up, and they hadn't caught anything all night. This is three years before, before this happens. And Jesus says, throw your nets onto the other side of the fish. And Peter kind of responds with like, hey, listen, I don't tell you how to give sermons. Don't tell me how to fish, but, you know, whatever. If it appeases you, it appeases you. And so Peter throws his nets on the other side. The disciples pull it up, and it's, it's the most fish that they've ever caught in a, single, in a single haul. And after that moment, Peter leaves everything behind, and he goes and follows Jesus. And so he's been with Christ for three years. He's seen miracle after miracle. He's seen Jesus escape death multiple times. He's seen incredible things. He's actually seen uh, Jesus in his full glory with Moses and Elijah on both sides. Like Peter has seen some incredible things. And yet, three years, after almost three years of being together, um, they're back at the same beach where they, very, where they met. It's, it's coming full circle. And in John 21, verses 15 through 19, it says this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So what's really interesting is in this moment, Peter is again struggling with, with insecurity. And if, if Moses is struggling with the idea of, um, I'm not skilled enough to do what God has called me to do. And if Gideon is struggling with, I'm not important enough to do what God has called me to do. I would say that Peter is struggling with the idea of, I'm not, I'm not good enough to do what God has called me to do. Like, I've sinned too much. I've screwed up too much. Like, I, I, I denied you to three people. And when, when you needed me the most, when you were on the cross and you were dying, um, I, I was at home scared. And I wasn't there for you. And I, I love the fact that, Pe- that Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Because in that moment, Jesus is kind of giving Peter a chance to wipe the slate clean, right? Like, will you deny me three times and we're just going to undo it? And, and, and what an incredible moment that Jesus calls Peter to ministry at this spot three years ago, and they go, not literally to hell and back together, but they go through a lot of stuff together. And then on the same beach, and with the story being almost, almost the same, Jesus gives Peter a chance to wipe the slate clean, and then he calls him into ministry again. And this call to ministry isn't as glorious as the one to Moses and Gideon, right? And those ones, it's like, hey, listen, you're going to be awesome, and you're going to lead the people out of Israel, and people are going to write stories about you. And with Peter, it's like, hey, listen, you're going to do ministry and get crucified upside down. Um, Not exactly like, you know, the most glorious call, but it is, in fact, Peter's call um, to ministry. And Jesus knows that when he's talking to Peter in this moment, that a a very short time later, Peter's actually going to preach at Pentecost, and 3,000 people are going to come to know Christ because of Peter's messages. And then Peter is going to travel all around the world and he's going to be preaching Christ. And in fact, he's going to end up in Rome, which is the most influential city of the time. And he's going to be uh, converting people, or I guess that's kind of a weird word. He's going to be telling people about um, the good news of what Jesus has done. And people are going to be coming to faith, even in the midst of being oppressed. And la- later on, if, if, if this is kind of the story of of Peter dealing with, um, of dealing with insecurity and Jesus helping him through that. In, in the book of Acts, what we get is kind of the long form of, of Jesus' answer, not just to Peter, but to all the disciples. And so this is when Jesus is getting ready to leave. He's going back to heaven. The disciples are being empowered for ministry, and he says this or in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Or in other words, I will be with you. The Holy Spirit will empower you to do this ministry that I have called you for. As as Christians, I think 
that we should never allow ourselves to live as hostages to insecurity. We should never allow ourselves to not do the things um, that God has called us to do because we're, we're afraid that, you know, maybe like Moses, we think um, that we're, we're not skilled enough or like Gideon, we think that we're not important enough or like Peter, we think that we're not good enough. You know, whatever those things may be that come into, come into our heads. Um, but at the end of the day, Moses thought he wasn't skilled enough, but it didn't matter because God was with him. Gideon thought that he wasn't important enough, but it didn't matter because God was with him. And Peter thought that he wasn't good enough, but it, do- it didn't matter because God was with him. And, and maybe you're out there thinking, you know, wh- whatever it is that you're thinking, whatever it is that is wrestling up with your insecurities, whatever it is that's holding you back maybe from, from doing those things that you know God has asked you to do, I, I would just encourage you to, to stop thinking about Am I enough? Am I good enough? Am I, am I whatever it is? But start really wrestling with the idea. Do, do I truly believe in, in my heart of hearts that Jesus is actually enough? And if, if we truly believe that, I promise you it will change your life. It will change your outlook on everything. It will change the insecurities that you feel. It will change the things that are holding you back. At the end of the day, the idea of whether or not we're good enough, the insecurities that we wrestle with, it's, it's not so much that um, they're invalid, but really it's, it's that it's the wrong question. The, the question that we should constantly be asking is, is my God enough for me? And I encourage all of us as we kind of take the rest of this week, as we take this season, um, which is granted a little odd, and we go into the next year, like, let's truly wrestle through those things together. Let's pray together. Let's think about those things together. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the South Coast Christian Podcast. We appreciate those who give on a regular basis to South Coast because through your giving, we are able to provide these resources. For more information about South Coast, including service times and ways to give, please visit southcoastchristian.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast. Thanks again, and may this week be filled with new opportunities where you can receive and share God's love.